Can I have your phone, please? It's just blowing up. Wait a minute. I, it's I not as bad as your know. coughing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess not. Welcome to WCSU 411, a podcast about interesting people and achievements at Western Connecticut State University. I'm Paul Steinmetz, and today we are recording on the Midtown campus in the basement of Whitehall with Danbury Mayor Mark Bowden, who is also running for the Republican nomination for Governor of Connecticut. After our interview, we'll be talking with Barbara Viegas, who will talk about the uh, events coming up on campus in the next week. But until then, here's Mark Bowden. Thanks for joining us here on the podcast today. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, uh, you have uh, a lot of knowledge about WestCon, partly because you've been uh, mayor for the last 45 years, but also because you graduated <laughs> from here. I don't know if it was 45 years, but uh, I am an alumni, a proud alumni of this uh, university and spent a lot of time on the West Side campus, but a little bit down here in Midtown, but um, it's been a great place and, and I'm so proud to serve in a community that has an institution like this. Yeah, without WestCon, we'd be Thomaston or something like that. You know, Thomas is pretty nice, too, but yeah. uh, in general, I would say uh, it definitely has helped us create our identity out here in Western Connecticut. No mm -hmm. question about it. Thank you. So you're running for governor now. You've done this. Uh, this will be your third time uh, officially running for governor. Yes. And I had the biggest crowd ever at my kickoff. Oh, huge. really? Down Just Palace huge. Yeah, huge, Theater? Yeah. yeah. I was kidding. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, um, I'm running for governor, and uh, actually it's my second time. Now, everybody likes to say three times, but really I ran for lieutenant governor in 2010. Oh, that's true. And um, so, or you could even argue it's two and a half times, but uh, this is definitely not my first um, rodeo. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, I am assuming you think you uh, will do, can do good things for the state. So talk about your guiding principles and what you bring to the, would bring to the office. Well, I think, you know, there's a, a vision and a plan uh, that we've been working on for Connecticut that we think is really important. Uh, but when you talk about guiding principles, those are really more leadership qualities and how you want um, to manage uh, the state each day and, and what uh, attitudes and characteristics that you bring, as well as um, how you view managing in general. And, and I've always taken the approach of managing for both the short term and the long term. So. Um, you know, oftentimes people make uh, the mistake of managing just what's right in front of them, and then the long term, you know, slowly gets off the tracks. And then the other problem is sometimes people are only thinking long term, and they don't understand that there are short term decisions that are crucial and critical that have to be made. So uh, I try to do both. Um, sometimes people scratch their heads and they go, I don't understand why you would do that. And I try to explain to them that look, there's a longer game that we're playing here, you have to understand that. Um, and then later on, they'll come back a couple years later and say, oh, you were right. Now I know why you made that decision. So um, that's uh, just something I've always brought with me to, to any job I've had. Um, I also work very hard at transparency, at pretty much telling uh, anybody anything they want to know. You know you worked in the media, and um, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, whatever the issue was, um, the more information the public has, I think the better off we all are. And I think ultimately, even if the public doesn't, agree with you they may understand why you, you arrived at a certain decision or conclusion or whatever um so we we have made that a tenet of of what i do in terms of uh my leadership skills and then i also always uh, have believed in something i was taught very when i was very young by my father which was to always keep your word and that means if you tell somebody you're gonna do something you do it and may i may not get it done tomorrow but it'll eventually get done um and um don't promise things that you can't deliver so 
Um, between all those things, I try to bring that kind of belief system uh, into the governor's office and understanding that we've got a lot of problems to tackle, that Connecticut is in a very difficult situation, our universities are in a difficult situation. Um, and that these times call for bold initiatives, big plans, and really uh, making courageous choices. Mm-hmm. So you've been a, a mayor for a long time, and that's not an easy job. There's a lot of... Um uh, it's like a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job with a lot of um, people coming at you all the time, I think, and a lot of tough uh, things you've got to solve. But governor is like another 10 times up, right? It is. Um, although the worst job I ever had was to be president of a condo association. That was a nightmare. I, mean, I got rid of that as fast as I possibly could. Probably because I didn't get paid for it, and uh, it was highly stressful because you know it's in your wheelhouse, it's in your na- it's your neighbors. But uh, being mayor of a, of a large city, uh, which is about ninety thousand people, and then having to understand that people want to be in touch with their mayor, they want to be in tune with their mayor, they want to know them that they're there. Danbury is not a city where you could send a deputy mayor or send a representative. You have to do things yourself. So between those two things, it's been a interesting and very intensive ride for me over the last 16 years in terms of a career. I, I frankly never thought uh, I would be here this long and um, didn't plan it that way. And it's part of my, I think, failing in politics is I, I didn't have a master plan. You know, Everybody says, well, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to run for governor, and then I'm going to run for president. I don't have that kind of plan, and I think that might appeal to the residents of Connecticut because I really believe in the service portion of public service that I, I'm here to try to make things better, to find to put us in a better spot than where I find us right now. And um, then leave and get off the stage and let somebody else pick up the ball and run with it. So going into the governor's office will be in some ways 10 times 10 more difficult, particularly with the problems that we face. But if you talk to a lot of politicians, they'll tell you that the hardest job they can ever, they've ever done is be mayor. So it's a, it's, this is a job where you're up close and personal every day with people. You, you go to Stu Leonard's, you, you go to ShopRite, wherever you go shopping, and there's people there that know you or have a pre- question or problem or an issue or are unhappy with you or happy with you. You know, there's no, it's 24-7. There's no time off. Mm-hmm. So there are, aren't there 12 candidates, Republican candidates for the nomination? There's at least 50 at last count. So <laughs> <laughs> everybody wants to fish in that pond, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I would say 12 candidates and probably six that would be competitive. Mm-hmm. And... You, though, are the one who's been around longest, right? You've been talking to other town committees all around the mm-hmm. state for yeah, at least eight years. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, and I'm not the only person to run multiple times for the office of no. governor. And, you know, uh, yeah, Governor Rowland ran twice. Uh, governor Malloy ran twice. Um, so, and it's, so it's not something that's unprecedented. And oftentimes it takes you that long to build a statewide network of people and supporters and, and so forth. You know, we were talking about this on the way coming in, is that the game now has tried to define me as one thing, um, where the people in Danbury know me as something else, right? Mm-hmm. So we have to be able to translate our success and our popularity in Danbury and what makes people hopefully like our agenda to uh, a much broader base and a much larger base. So that's the trick in, in what we do. But definitely have been making the rounds and uh, doing the rubber chicken circuit and, and all that stuff. That's part of the job. And I actually like that stuff. I like campaigning. Mm-hmm. And for a nomination, it's uh, really the most important, right? Because people do get to know you that way. They do. They do. They uh, absolutely do. I, I think our best place to be with people is when we're one-on-one or small groups. 
Um, but we also do the debating and, and all that st- other stuff, too, that's out there. So we prepare very hard for that. Mm. And the debates, you're trying to uh, make a point and stand out and not let other people, uh, the other candidates, uh, knock you down or define you, right? Right. And so, you know, many people perceive us as at least being at the front of a very large pack. So, of course, everybody, you know, tears at you and wants you to pull you, pull you down. Um, you can't let them do that. That's the game is to you know distract you from your, executing your plan over the next six or five or six months. And so we've been very careful just to keep slowly, methodically moving forward and not let other people and other dramas come in that will waste your time and, and frankly, or you'd be arguing with people that are never going to vote for you anyways. So you have to recognize that and understand how that game is played, if you will. And most of those candidates, no one's ever heard of before. I know there's a couple of millionaires in the race. There's Tony Boucher, who's good. But otherwise, it's like, who is it? There's no one. There's um, definitely a lot of, quote, outsiders. The big thing now is to be the outsider and Mm -hmm. not the insider. I'm not sure what an insider is, but that's uh, everybody's claiming that they're the outsider. Um, And I think at the end of the day is what we want is competency, right? I mean, we don't necessarily need an outsider insider. We want somebody who's going to fix the darn problems and get the state moving forward. So um, that's sort of their play on that. And you're right, there are a lot of people that are not well known. A lot of folks ran on the ticket four years ago, did well, and wanted to translate, say, running for secretary of state now into running for governor. So that's why you see so many names up there. Hmm. But everybody's the outsider. Right. So one of the things you've done to, uh, I assume, help you set yourself apart is talk about the state income tax and getting rid of that, right? Yeah, we, that's one of our major uh, planks of our platform, if you will, at this point. And I understand the cynicism and the rolling of the eyes that people have out there to say that's just not possible. But there's a couple of things you have to understand if you really take a step back and look at it. And that is that most people who, even if they're the, quote, outsiders, really are stuck inside in terms of how they look at government. And what I'm really proposing through this initiative to, re- to reduce the state income tax, a phase out over 10 years, is to completely redesign and restructure state government. And it's over a 10-year period. So I may not be there to see the end of it, but each year we would take further and further steps to reduce the reliance as an income stream on the income tax and to cut costs appropriately each way. So it's not a, a, a situation where, you know, I'm telling people, hey, when I get elected in January or November, January, when I get sworn in, there's not going to be any more income tax. It doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. It's a slow, methodical approach to, to looking at the way that we ha- our government, to understand that our government has grown by a third since the, implica- since the uh, implementation of the income tax and that um, uh, we've lost population yet and, and uh, uh, have lost services. So whatever we're doing right now is not working. And I think we have to recognize that, and we got to say instead of you know moaning and complaining and complaining and crying about it, let's take this as opportunity. Let's sit here and say, okay, the path we've taken for the last twenty five years has not been successful. What's the right path? And I would say that the right path is what nine other states are doing in the United States of America that don't have an income tax. Now that was prior to the federal tax code reform that just came out, which now says that you're you're capped at ten thousand dollars for property taxes and and uh, income tax in terms of what you can deduct from your federal taxes. So there's now even more urgency to look at this. And then when we look at the growth charts and say, well, who's really you know blown through the roof in terms of the growth of their state and popularity and people moving in, you, all of them are uh, non-income tax states. And the closest one we have here is New Hampshire, which has done really well. But a destination for Danbury people, I'm not quite sure why, has been Tennessee. There's an entire 
um, commune of te- former teachers, my friends that I taught high school with that are now living in Tennessee on a lake. Um, and they send me emails all the time laughing at me up here. But, um, you know, the fact of the matter is they don't have an income tax. They don't tax their pensions. They don't tax, uh, they don't have an estate tax. There's no gift tax. So, yeah, you know, and at the end of the day, you're not going to just be able to wipe out all that revenue, but we're going to have to restructure our tax code and our revenue. If, we, if we're going to respond to all these things in the marketplace, if we're going to put our niche, our thing, our marketing uh, tool out there, that can tell people to come to Connecticut like they did before 1991, we've got to get rid of the state income tax. And I think it's interesting what you say about marketing it because there are Massachusetts, take that as an example, has, uh, is successful in a lot of ways. They're very high tax, but they have other things going for them that um, attract people and I guess corporations too. But um, So it doesn't have to be you're low tax, you're low everything else. Uh, it has to be a couple of things that attract people and make it um, stand the state stand out a little bit. Yeah, and just uh, and for Connecticut, our success was based on again prior to 1981 was that we didn't have an income tax, and we're beautiful, you know, all beautiful area with all kinds of assets, no income tax, um, and we were just a little bit cheaper than Boston and New York City. So. People flocked here, mm-hmm. companies flocked here, people stayed here, they raised their children here, they, they retired here. Now that we also are equal to, or in some cases even more expensive, with particular parts of New York and, and Massachusetts, people say, well, I would rather live in Brooklyn and have Broadway and the Yankees and uh, uh, the Nets and everything else than live in Westport and not have all those amenities and pay the same price. So we've got to get our, our ability uh, to attract people back here and to stop this outflow and migration of wealth. That's killing us, and it's killing us because uh, when every time somebody who makes more than, say, $150,000 or has a very large pension or investments leaves to go to Florida, that's disposable, discretionary income that's taken out of our economy. Um, that leaves people that are here or the people that can't move generally are high-needs folks that need a lot of services, which we obviously want to give to them. We, we don't want to be... Uh, inhumane to people, but they can't pay the bill. So that spiral goes faster and faster and faster. And that's what we've got to stop. And to do that, we've got to retain those folks. We've got to give them a reason to stay in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And so doing that, if you do that, uh, you can still maintain at least uh, these, these services at the levels that they are. There are a lot of services in Connecticut that places like Tennessee and Florida don't offer, right? There, there is that. There's no question about that. We're, we offer some of the uh, most amount of social services, if you will. My argument to you would be, well, I think that the nonprofit private sector can do it a lot cheaper than the state can. So what I'd rather do is just give out a grant to a particular organization, be it the Women's Center or something like that, and say, you do those services, you do the case management, you do the follow-up, then you report back. To, and, and in exchange for this grant, you're going to report back through us. Um, because many times, in many cases, those uh, agencies are non-union, and they're more flexible in their work hours, they're, you know, they're privatized, so they can just move a lot quicker than, say, a government can. I mean, government's really good at doing some really important things, public safety, giving somebody a hand up instead of a handout and educating our kids. We, we kind of got all that down. The rest of the stuff that has crept into our mission over the last 40 years, we're not so good at. And mm-hmm. we, you don't get a good rate of return on that. And so we've got to go back and look at that and, and say, maybe there's somebody else out there who can do it better. You know, everybody, right now the hot button issue for the candidates is they're all pointing to the DMV, which is, you know, it's, it's a hot mess. I mean, it's difficult. They don't do good retail stuff. They're great at the back end, but it's hard for them to process license plates and tests and 
you know, we had a relationship with AAA that was easy to use, and I didn't mind paying 10 more dollars for my renewal of my license if I didn't have to wait in a line for three hours. It's like worth it to me. I love AAA. <laughs> so, so, you know, we, and we severed our relationship with them. So that's the kind of thing we ought to look at and say, isn't it better if we let them do the front end, we'll handle the back end, keep all the, you know, records and stuff that has to be kept for a variety of reasons and let people do what they do best. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like what I did in Danbury. Look, in Danbury, I, you know, I looked around and I always saw this line of people waiting to pay their taxes. And Danbarians are very good at paying their taxes and we really appreciate it. But I said, geez, you know, would I want to wait in a line for 20 minutes to pay this city, you know, my payment of $3,000 a quarter or whatever the number is? No, it frustrated me. So what we did is we went to the, I'm thinking, well, who, 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 who takes in money and does it well? Well, it's the banks. So we went to the banks and we said, can you guys collect our taxes for us? And just report to us at the end of the day how you did and who paid. And they said, no problem. And we've got a computer system that interfaces with our local banks. And now you don't have to wait in line. You can go on Saturday. You, you know, we're open six days a week. And it's really a, a great example of how we can partner up with the private sector to do government functions. Mm-hmm. So what has to happen for, say, your governor for that to happen? What kind of things do you have to break down to make that happen? Well, I, I think... <clears throat> There has to be a, really a change in consciousness here in Connecticut about the space that we're in. And I think everybody, uh, whether you're right-wing, left-wing, Republican, Democrat, unaffiliated, whatever your persuasion is, has to recognize that the hardcore reality is we are on an unsustainable path. We just can't keep doing this. And if we can all agree to that, then it's, okay, well, how do we fix that, right? Where do we want to be at the end? And if we can agree on the outcomes, then it's a matter of just arguing over which path do we take. The fact of the matter is our unfunded mandates for our state employees are, are breaking the bank. You know, our pensions are like Pac-Man. They're gobbling up every part of our budget. Our retiree medical is incredibly expensive. Um, and our state teacher's retirement, and, and full disclosure, I'm a teacher and eligible for a retirement check, uh, is underfunded and is, is in, in, in danger of collapsing as well. So we have to get that, and then we got to say, all right, you got to let us make some changes for you know, I know, I know, you folks. You're designed to fight. I don't disagree or argue with collective bargaining. I get it, but you just got to recognize that we're going to be insolvent, and we can't go bankrupt. But we're going to be insolvent if we follow this path. And by the way, you'll have one state trooper on the highway between here and Hartford. At, you know, because we just can't afford anything else. And through through um, attrition, you'll end up not having anybody working for the state, and you'll never get anything done. So. That's not good for all of us, but I think that moment has to happen that, you know, where we just says, yeah, we get it. We've got to make this change. So do you think that can happen before the, uh, what's the, the um, union agreement in the last four See years? Back, uh, yeah, yeah that, that, that gets up 2027. Um, I think it has to happen before them. I think there's, there's you know, I'm, we're going to pick all the low-hanging fruit first, right? Mm-hmm. So we're going to work at uh, um, putting it together, a proposal, slapping it down on the legislator's desk in the first 90 days of our time in office we're going to push and fight and pull and tug and try to work that way it's through this legislature um and we are you know going to then have to approach CVAC and say we you know we're, you're just not going to have it it doesn't it doesn't really matter what the contract says 10 years from now the state won't have that money now we can make it so that they will have the money that you counted on for your retirement but you got to work with us on new employees you got to let us if you have never worked for the state you got to let us change the terms and conditions of the contract so new people coming in you know, don't necessarily get that level of benefit. You know, we've done that at the city of Danbury, and it's okay. I mean, the new employees get it, they understand, and they're still happy to have a job and, and proud to work for the city. So um, it, it's all how you handle those conversations. Mm-hmm. So that's one piece of it. And then, of course, the other piece is, is just working on 
uh, or the low doing the things that you can do without the permission of the legislature or anything else. And there are a number of things, particularly our permitting and other stuff like that, that, mm-hmm. that is just ripe for, for reorganization and ripe for, uh, you know, fixing. When you talk about permitting, are you talking about state permits or going all town and municipal permits going through a, a new process? Or? Well, I think you start first with the state permit process, which is, depending on the agency in the area, is very difficult. It's unwieldy, and it takes forever, right? So companies have choices now, and you know, they don't have to locate here in Connecticut. They can go to Virginia, where it takes them two weeks to issue a permit. It takes Connecticut two years to issue, and they're just not going to wait anymore. So it's we're losing business, and we're losing even prospects of business and people coming in and looking around saying, hey, I want to maybe locate here and how long is it going to take me to get my permits even from the state side? Well, it's two years. Forget it. I'm out of here, right? So that's not going to work. So I think we would start there. And then I also think there's a discussion we made about, you know, how we interface with municipalities and what we can ask them to do and, and not ask them to do in terms of the permits they issue. Fully understanding that communities want to be certain kinds of communities. Some communities welcome commercial development. They want it. Other communities do not. And that's okay. You know, we're going to allow people to keep their identity. But at certain points, we've got to work together to drive uh, development where it can uh, create jobs and generate tax revenue. So um, both of those things are, are, are on the table for us. And one of the things we're proposing is having a single point of entry for your permit, regardless of what it is, and a single department um, that will uh, have a, a person that will report directly to the governor that if you're having a problem getting a permit, be you Westcon or be a, a Shell gas station, you, you know, it's just waited forever, you could call us, we would be able to shag it down for you, find out what's happening, get back to you, and then and then get the wheel turning again. And um, Just little things like that don't cost any money, but they'll put revenue in our uh, in our uh, cash uh, account so that we can pay our bills. Mm-hmm. And just a couple more questions on uh, policy. Out of the big cities, what are your ideas about the big cities in Connecticut and all those problems they face? Well, you know, as a big city mayor, I'm incredibly supportive of Hartford and Bridgeport and Waterbury and places like that. And we'll work closely with their mayors to try to get them the, the short-term stuff that they need to be able to continue their, their mission. But um, many of their where they are right now is a product of poor decision-making particularly when it comes to things like union salaries and benefits and stuff like that. And some of these folks, if they're unwilling to change, then maybe bankruptcy is the right path for them. Mm. Maybe, you know, maybe that's the only hard medicine that they're going to be able to get. And I always, I can point to dozens of examples, but, you know, because Danbury is such a well-organized and well-run community in terms of, and our salaries, benefits, and wages are fair. They're not over the top, but they're not unfair, you know, and, um, I always point to the registrar of voters in, in Danbury make about $55,000 a year, roughly $56,000 a year. That same job in the city of Hartford pays over $100,000 a year. So um, you can see that that's just one area where uh, there's a poor choice made, right? You're paying double uh, what you pay people in Danbury to do. You know, in Hartford, uh, the city councilmen, or I, think, I don't think they're all of them, but I think they're councilmen, um, whatever, the, the, the legislative body, each representative has a full-time aide to work for them in Hartford, which is only about 15 square miles. I mean, how bad could it be, right? Right. In the city of Danbury, you have one person that works for 21 council people uh, and is responsible for providing documents or whatever else they want to look at. So um, that all adds up. I mean, it adds up at the end to a big number uh, for Hartford or for Bridgeport or for other places. And... uh, 
you know, at the end of the day, it becomes, un, again, unsustainable. They're not making any more land. So there's no more grandless to develop. And they've already had and, and continue to have that downward spiral of people moving out, which makes the communities worse. So there's a short-term stuff. Uh, then there's a long-term stuff where we're looking. We need to reform a lot of your processes here, and we have to recognize that you just can't keep doing things the way you've always done them because they're not working. If they're working, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Going bankrupt, though, is a big deal. There was some talk about Hartford uh, looking at bankruptcy, um, and everybody was uh, up in arms about it. Look, I wasn't thrilled about the prospect of any city in Connecticut going bankrupt. It's bad for your bond rating. It's bad for the state. It's bad for pretty much everybody. And it takes years to dig your way out of that reputation of being bankrupt. However, in that case of Harper, there were several groups of uh, collective bargaining groups of unions that were unwilling to budge. And at that point, if you can't get your folks to move and if you can't cut costs meaningful, giving them just another $20 million, which is what we did, um, is really bad policy because mm-hmm. it doesn't hold them accountable for the decisions that they're making. And um, especially in this uh, budget cycle when we don't have a lot of money to give away, it's really bad. Um, it doesn't doesn't make them make any more changes in the future. So now what's going to happen is in another year, probably less than a year, I predict less than a year, they're going to be back at the table saying, we need more money, we're going to run bankrupt. You know, State of Connecticut, you got to continually underwrite us, and that's not good. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've mentioned, uh, talked about school, uh, school districts around the state and how to uh, make, pay them and uh, make them run more efficiently, too. Um, uh, and you mentioned something about keeping the legislators out of the uh, process of mm-hmm. how the money's spent, right? That's right. So explain yeah. that a little bit. Well, you know, our state legislature are wonderful people um, who are part-time people. They're not experts. They may be experts in a specific field, but they're not experts in terms of education. There's a few teachers that might be you know, pretty up on issues, but in general, mm-hmm. that's not their thing. And yet we have them driving policy uh, changes and policy ideas. And, and when it comes to the dispersion of money, um, that often uh, breaks down along who has the most clout, who has the most influence within the legislative body. So if your community has a lot of legislators or has a very effective outreach program, um, or is perceived as being you know, tr- in trouble financially, you tend to get a lot of attention, a lot of money. And if you're a community like Danbury, which we do have a very effective legislative body, but the problem is that um, on the books, we look pretty well off, we really get penalized. And it's almost, it's a very perverse, weird situation where the better you do at managing your money and the better choices you make on the local level causes you to be penalized on the state level. So if you uh, made poor decisions and gave away all your money, they're just going to give you more. If you washed every nickel and every dime, then they say, well, you got enough, so you don't need any more money. So, um, but you know, that can only last for so long before it starts impacting your local districts. And so I think uh, there are a number of steps that we can take to be able to get uh, uh, cities and towns, uh, districts, if you will, across the state to think more strategically. Um, you know, One of the great ideas I've seen out there, and, I, and certainly would like to implement it, it would be, uh, first of all, freeing up what it takes to be a superintendent. Mm-hmm. I think our, our certification requirements are just way too rigid. Um, and I think uh, to, in today's day and age, a district can hire a very good business agent slash executive director of the district and have the curriculum people they need, right? So now we're asking superintendents to be great curriculum people, great business people, great uh, you know managers and logistics people. And it's hard to find that person, right? So um, you, you can go out and you can hire terrific curriculum people and then you can hire a really good business person 
to run the district and make sure that everything goes accordingly uh, every morning. And um, we don't have to spend as much money to do that, but you can also share superintendents across districts and have just your, <coughs> have just your, for the record, that was Paul, that wasn't me. <laughs> so, so you can just have your, uh, um, your executive director run the district and then report up to a regional superintendent um, for the really big decisions. And that won't impact programming, that won't impact um, anything that goes on. I, I always think of this guy, you may have remembered him, Paul, because you were at the paper at the time, Tim Connors. And, and this is no disrespect on Dr. Pascarella, who I get along with very well. But Tim was not a traditional superintendent, one of the best superintendents we ever had here uh, in the city of Danbury. Didn't have the advanced degrees, but man, he could figure out where to find money. He could motivate people and inspire people to do a great job. Uh, a terrific, terrific manager. Everybody really liked him. And uh, he did very well for us for the years that he was here. Um, in terms of high schools, I always, you know, John Getz was somebody that, uh, principal of Danbury High School, great principal. I worked for him for a decade. Um, phenomenal in terms of being able to manage a, a very big organization and not necessarily be micromanaging it every second. And I think we can take that same kind of attitude to superintendencies across the uh, state of Connecticut. And mm -hmm. I think we ought to, you know, I always tell people it's not necessarily just about town versus town, but it's within the town. For example, do we need two finance directors? Do we need two personnel directors? Do we need two uh, key level management people? I mean, is there a way to combine those in specific towns, two IT departments? And people always say, oh, you can't do that because, you know, it's so specific for education and it's not the same. You know, I mean, that's, that's where we got to get better. You know, that's where we've got to be able to cross-train people so they know how to do both uh, kinds of uh, um, functions. So let's switch a little bit to uh, what it's like to run a statewide campaign, which is a little bit different. You have a different staff for the campaign. I saw uh, recently a... Um, Guy running around organizing your press conference. He looked like he's uh, murdered a couple of people and hidden <laughs> bodies. You need somebody like that, right, to run a statewide campaign? I don't know if we have anybody that murdered anybody working yeah. first, but okay, yeah, sure. And uh, you're really running two organizations, right? The city, yep. <clears throat> all that stuff, and then um, figuring out how to get yourself around the state too and make that pitch. Well, how about running three organizations, right? So I, in the fall, I ran um, City of Danbury. I had a re-election for the mayor of the city of Danbury, so that's one another staff. And then I had our, our uh, um, governor uh, exploratory committee staff. So in all those cases, that uh, requires you to be very busy and to be able to multitask and, and you really have a clear vision about what you want done and how you want it done. Um, political talent in Connecticut, is, particularly on the Republican side, is difficult to find. Uh, it's not a lot out there. What is out there, though, is very good. I, I'm blessed to have Mark Dillon running our campaign. He's a... Uh, an operative, and he recently worked for the city of Stratford as their um, COO. So he knows uh, cities and towns, he knows politics, he's worked for House Republicans. Hmm. And we're lucky that we've been able to pick him up and add him in. And then Lindsay Jacobs, she does all of our uh, finance-related stuff. She was our finance director, got us past the threshold that we needed to get past through uh, making me sit at the phone and dial people even when I wouldn't, like a petulant kid. Um, and um, she did a great job. And uh, we're going to keep her and uh, embed her into the campaign now. So um, I've just been lucky to find good talent and to seek out good talent and, and talk to people and convince them to come along for the ride and see what we can make happen. And you have to, um, like you said, Ed said earlier, you're um, kind of uh, <clears throat> creating your persona and making sure that it's uh, accurate. You have this all this 
in Danbury, you're face-to-face. People know you personally. They hear you personally. And, um, it's a lot easier, right. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and they just chuckle, right? So when somebody makes a wild allegation locally, people know me here. And they know who I am, and I've grown up with them. I've seen them forever, and it, you know, like yeah, that doesn't—that's that doesn't mean anything. It's not going to happen. But the race is now out in the rest of the part of the state where the other people try to define me right. before I can define myself. Right. So that's part of why you have to be out there so much uh, work in the state of Connecticut. And even at these debates, they ask different questions than they do here because it just doesn't come up. But uh, they ask you, uh, you know, have you ever sexually harassed anybody? They ask about your girlfriend. <laughs> well, the answer to that question first is no. And then secondly, um, uh, yes, I do have a, at over 50, you don't have a girlfriend, you have a lady friend. Yeah. So I have a lady friend. Um, we'll see where that goes. But yeah, they do get all up into your business, particularly uh, uh, there's an article over the weekend that was um, written that sort of, I'm not sure what the point of it was, and it, it was very well written. So Jackie, don't get mad if you're listening. Um, but, um, you know, as she said, and I recognize it, people are going to ask. So mm-hmm. my life has always been an open book. Um, it's always been transparent. Anything legally that's happened with the city is right online. Anybody can ask anything about it. The documents are freely available. I'm not uh, uh, ashamed of anything I've ever done in, in my adult life. Um, and I disagree with people and try to do it on a friendly basis. But, you know, sometimes I even write on Twitter, I'll say, well, we'll just have to agree to disagree mm-hmm. and move on. I'd like to have your lady friend on the podcast. Can Never. You, uh... <laughs> <laughs> She's a very uh, private person, and, yeah. uh, and uh, she wants to keep it that way. We'll be nice to her. Yeah, I'm sure you would. You know, the uh, one other question I had about running a camp- statewide campaign is that um, uh, I think politics is a blood sport, and if you're really going at it, can I have your phone, please? It's Sorry. just blowing up Wait a there. minute. I, it's I not as bad to... as your coughing. Okay. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> My phone's always blowing up. Go ahead. <laughs> so you got to, um, uh, and you know, you aren't that kind of person. You're uh, easygoing, pretty um, uh, calm. But when you run for this, you got to be able to eviscerate somebody and figure out how to uh, protect yourself against getting your throat slashed. Right? You got to go off at her with knives. There is, uh, yeah, you know, it's definitely a blood sport. There's no question about that. Um, there are things that I will do and I won't do, um, both ethically, morally, and just frankly, you got to be able to get up in the morning and, and, and live with yourself. And uh, I haven't gotten to that point yet, but if it meant, if it was the difference between, I would rather lose an election and be somewhat honorable than uh, win an election and do something completely disgusting, which I've seen other people do and mm-hmm. just been embarrassed by it. Um, so um, I think in the bigger picture, you know, and as you know, I had a, a very serious surgery through the summer and I had brain surgery, and, you know, that's made me reflect on a lot of this stuff. So will I defend myself? Absolutely. Will I um, point out uh, inadequacies in somebody else's record or when they're just lying? And will I call it a lie? Absolutely, because that's what it is, right? I always love it when you hear people say, well, he wasn't like, you know, really straight with the truth that they try to, I don't know, it was, it was a lie. <laughs> Let's be honest. Um, I'm going to say that, um, but I'm not going to fixate on what everybody else is doing. My job is to go out and sell a positive vision of where Connecticut can be and what it can be. And if I spend all my time looking at all the other candidates and trying to uh, disrupt them, then I'm not talking to the voters. And I, one thing I will say is the voters have become more sophisticated um, and they 
don't necessarily take everything everybody says as exactly you know the truth forever you know everybody checks everything out and uh, as we started this conversation you know being transparent oftentimes the truth does set you free and so although you know in our pol- in politics you only have to say it, it doesn't have to be true so there's that, that balance there right um, but I will uh, defend myself when attacked I'll hit you back um, but I'm not going to sit there and pick fights with people just to show that I can pick fights with people I think we have enough of that right now in our government I think this is about this isn't about tearing down a barn it's about building a bridge to a new Connecticut and the way we build things is we work together we don't have to agree we just got to agree that we want to get to a certain place don't agree on every path or every fork in that road that we take, but to get to that certain path, we've got to work together, and that means we've got to marshal Republicans, unaffiliated Democrats. Everybody's got to work together to be able to do this. And certainly, I govern with Republican principles. I'm a fiscal conservative. I'm tight with the dollar. People will tell you that, and to the point where it drives people nuts. But on the other hand, I am using the taxpayer money, so I have to be cognizant of that, right? So, um, but I'm also a what I would consider to be a, you know, I know the term's been used before, but a compassionate conservative. And um, I care about people, and um, I love my job, and I, and I love what I do. Mm-hmm. So you were on, um, you've done a lot of interviews locally and uh, around the state. Sunday you were on the um, Face of State with Dennis House. So which interview was better, this one or with Dennis House? Well, this is great because you get 45 minutes when it's a little bit more in-depth, uh, and uh, a little bit more time to be reflective. Um, and Dennis does a good job. I'm, I'm a big fan of his. But you only get a nine-minute segment, and it's, it's hard to cover a lot of stuff in nine minutes. And uh, we often find, when I'm on that show, we find that we still want to keep talking, but, you know, time's up. Mm-hmm. Um, that's part of the problem, too, I think, in general, of politics today, where people are taught to speak in sound bites and, and snippets, and you don't get a good internal view of who that person is as a person. And I think these kinds of forums and media um, help you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've often kicked around the idea of doing a podcast. Haven't done it yet. I'm, I'm still futzing around with Facebook Live because I think that's a medium that can that can do some in, in, neat stuff. But um, uh, I applaud you for doing this, and I think it's a good way to, to get out there and to talk to people directly. Uh, so you have uh, about 35,000 people who follow you on Twitter, right? Yes. When we post this, are you going to put our link on uh, for this podcast on your Twitter feed? We'll see. I'll have to talk to my team. Um, you're a little rough on me in here, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we can figure something out. Yeah. And will you, if you do that, will you um, ask them to uh, sign up for WCSU 411 and fo- so they can follow us? Absolutely. And put a, a comment on so uh, we get higher ratings, and I. Uh, this is my alma mater. I'll do anything for that's my. That's good. Remind them it's on iTunes and Stitcher, and um, the other one is um, SoundCloud. You got it. All right. You got it. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Great to be Appreciate here. Appreciate it. Hi everyone, it's Barbara. Um, so Paul couldn't be with us today, but I'm going to be taking over and just running through some events with everyone so everyone can stay updated and know everything that's going on on campus. So it could be a really great first week for everyone, or maybe second week. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and start with um, SGA. SGA right now, this Wednesday actually, um, is going to have our Spring Clubs Carnival. So Fall Clubs Carnival was a huge success. It was really, really cool. And it's basically, for those of you who don't know, it's um, for all the clubs on campus, new or newly formed or old clubs or anything, 
um, to come and have a table and just talk to new students and returning students about what their club is about and try to recruit members. Um, so the Fall Club's Carnival was really, really exciting because it was outside, there was music and everything, and it was summer, <laughs> kind of, um, and hot outside. So, But Spring Club's Carnival is going to be a little bit toned down, and it's going to be in the West Side Ballroom um, from 3 to 5.30 on Wednesday. So uh, it's going to be really exciting, but still a little laid back. We're just going to have tables there. Some clubs might bring in some music or something, but it's going to be very relaxed. So it's going to be more of an intimate gathering for the clubs. So that should be really fun. And that's the really big event that SGA is doing. And SGA is also looking into doing um, a calendar for the future so that uh, clubs can have more of an idea of what we're doing. We're also going to have our inaugural ball uh, soon, not too soon, but once the semester is almost at the end. Um, so hopefully we can figure that out because we know that PAC has so many, so much success with that. So we're going to maybe look into doing that. And speaking of PAC, they have so many cool events this semester and some of them starting off is um, actually on January 24th from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. They're going to grab, they're going to have a grab and go commuter breakfast. So it's going to be in the Midtown Commuter Garage and it's going to be catered by Einstein's Food and Beverages. So it's basically just like a give back, stop by the table on your way out of the garage in the morning and just get free breakfast and coffee. So it's going to be really nice. Um, obviously everyone loves Einstein's, so great way to just grab breakfast if you forgot to eat, because I know all college students forget to eat always, like I do. Um, also, they have uh, their first badass bingo of the semester on January 26th at 6 p.m. It's a Friday in the West Side Ballroom, and there's $1,000 in prizes this, this time. Um, obviously, everyone knows that their badass bingos are just so <laughs> successful like all the time. They're really fun, and uh, for anyone that hasn't gone, you should definitely go because they do it so often, and there's always such great prizes, and it's just really fun to be around everybody and play bingo. So <laughs> it's really fun. Uh, also, they're doing another free event, which is crazy because, you know, this first week everyone's just getting to school and maybe people are a little stressed. So they're giving out so many cool things. And on Wednesday, uh, January, 20th, uh, January 31st, in the Midtown Student Center lobby, from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., they're giving pom-pom hats uh, for free. So you can stop by and grab a free pom-pom hats. The picture that they show on their Instagram that you should look at, their Instagram is WCSU. It's at WCSU underscore pack. And the pictures on here of uh, the hats are like striped blue, black, uh, red maybe. I don't know if those are the exact ones that they use, but they're pom-pom hats, so who doesn't love those? Wow, <laughs> stuttered. Love those. <laughs> uh, okay, some other things um, is that there, um, there's also going to be a coffee house um, at 9 p.m. on January 25th in the Colonial Corner. So you can hear the talented duo Shane and Emily, and they've performed places such as Disneyland and have opened for groups like Echo Smith. Echo Smith. <laughs> hey, Barbara, it's Pete. Hey. Hey, uh, where is Colonial Corner, in case people don't know? It's in the Student Center. So it's all the way downstairs. Um, you, like, take the back entrance, and it's, it's kind of it's where the spot is, if anyone has been to the spot where the SJ hosts. Okay, so down the end by Newberry and Litchfield... And it's down where yes. those couches and things are that yeah, are outside? Okay. exactly. Okay. Um, and then we have rec events. Um, they're doing a lot of really cool things, too. Uh, they're doing... Um, so I'm just going to read off their whole spring 2018 calendar. It's kind of small, but it's just very precise, and they did a really great job of, like, 
putting everything together. So I'm just going to read it off really quickly. Um, so February 9th is ice skating, and I'll probably, I'll definitely touch on these topics later in like other podcasts as well, because everyone's going to forget probably. <laughs> um, so February 9th is ice skating. Um, February 19th is a snow day, and hopefully once the dates get nearer, they'll release more information about what it's about, because snow day, I don't really know what it is, but sounds kind of cool. Um, March 2nd is Wreckfest. April 13th is Rec Olympics. April 22nd is the almighty, <laughs> the Muddy Chuck Challenge. And then the April, April 29th is Oozeball. So they have really great events going on as well. So some other cool things that are happening is, of course, the Newman Center is having the Newman Dinner. That's on Wednesday the 24th. And the Newman Center will host a free dinner featuring baked ravioli, salad rolls and cappuccino pudding at 5 p.m at this at the um at their newman like house <laughs> um if anyone doesn't know where that is it's 7 8th ave near the midtown campus um so if you have never get, been to a newman dinner they're so fun because they have like i think it's three tables and they just put out so much food and you just sit and it's of course it's um it's free and it's for you know students and anyone that needs like a meal um, and the food is actually excellent, like every single time. I've never gotten not like the food. Um, they had the Thanksgiving dinner last semester, and now um, they're just having like a new like welcome back baked ravioli thing. So I'm sure it's going to be really great and very, very tasty. Um, so also, this is kind of last minute, but still worth it if for some reason you want to go to the Dominican Republic. Um, the Newman Club also is doing the Dominican Republic mission trip. Uh, it's from Saturday, um, March 10th to Saturday, March 17th. And um, the mission trip is going to be the Dominican Republic during spring break, obviously. And it costs $550 per person and includes round-trip transportation, lodging, all meals, and more. Um, you can They can take cash or Connecticut card, cash accepted. They can take both of those. <laughs> um, so you can have, but you have to purchase your ticket by the 24th. Uh, so it's very last minute, but for some reason you have $550 and you feel like going to the Dominican Republic with the Newman Center to do awesome mission trip work, then definitely go buy your ticket because I've heard such great things. They go every year, I think. So. Yeah, and that's a great deal. Yeah, I mean, think about for it. $550? Yeah. It costs like $500 go to California. Like imagine like the Dominican <laughs> Republic yeah. with everything included. It's actually crazy. And you do some good. Yeah, exactly. I think they're, I don't know what they're doing. I think they might be like building schools I'm not sure something like that but I know that they do it all the time and it's just so good for the community yeah um okay we also have winter wine tasting um February 11th you can reserve your tickets um at for the WCSU foundation's winter wine tasting to support student success from 2 to 4 p.m at max wine and spirits so of course you have to be 21 and older for that and I think it's interesting that it's from 2 to 4, because it's a little early for wine. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's 5 o'clock somewhere, I guess. Um, that sounds really cool. So definitely do that. So there's going to be a lot of really cool things on campus this semester. Those are just a few that I've just touched upon. But obviously, there's so many different things all throughout the semester. There's also going to be WestFest, of course. We have to talk about that. Um, we haven't released any information yet. But... Um, it's going to be really exciting. I've already had a few meetings with PAC and um, our WestFest Council and all of that kind of thing uh, with Dennis Lesko and everyone um, to talk about everything. Like, So the ideas that we have on the table now are really cool, and 
were hoping to just make it a huge thing, make it as successful as Fall Bash was. Um, and yeah, there's not much I can say, but I know that it's going to be really exciting. So everyone should get excited for this semester because it's going to be really great. So is Westfest a single day or is it? No, of course not. Westfest <laughs> is a whole week of excellent activities. Um, so yeah, all of the, honestly, what, a big thing that I should probably say too, is that we're trying to include more clubs in it because a, for a long time it's been like, um, PAC, REC, SGA, like bi the big like student organizations that like revolve around like programming and events, but we really want, and Greek council, of course. Um, but we really want, um, we really want, uh, more student involvement with clubs because if your club wants to do something on an open slot where there's no events, then it's going to be super successful because it's going to be during Westfest week and everyone's going to, it's going to be on our Westfest calendar and all of that thing, all of that stuff with the shirts and everything. So if you want to do a big event for your, for um, your club or anything, like just, you can come to SGA, we can talk about it, funding and everything. And you can even come maybe to a Westfest council meeting. We don't have them set like in stone, but if you need anything, like you can email me at SGA VP student relations at wcsu.edu or just come to a senate meeting we have our senate meetings on fridays um we change the time i think it's at 11 30. i'm not positive <laughs> i should probably know that <laughs> but um yeah if, if you guys want to we really want students to come and get involved so if you want to just shout an idea to us come to the sga meeting and just voice your opinion or come talk to us about what your plans are for westfest because we'd love to support you do we have the dates for westfest um, I don't know. <laughs> I probably do. I actually do have the dates, but they're not with me. I totally know where the dates are. Okay. I'm unprepared. Is it, is it April? Is it like end of April? Or? Oh my God, I couldn't tell you. Okay, don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I should be more prepared. Oh, no, no, no. Um, but I will tell you next time. Okay. We'll <laughs> hold you to you're going to have to tune in next time. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys for listening to me. Um, I hope you have an excellent second week and a great semester. And if you want to talk about Westfest or anything else that's going on, feel free to email me at that email I gave to you. Um, thanks, guys. Hey, Barbara. Hey. Great job. Thanks. I want to thank our producers, Scott Volpe and Pete Puccio, who do all the work to make this podcast happen. Remember, if you like what you've heard, do what Mark Botton told you to do. Subscribe to this podcast at WCSU Media on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher so you can stay up to date with all editions of WCSU 411. Leave a comment there or on Twitter at WCSU 411. Thanks and see you next time.